I was angry. That that's I, I'm not someone who holds a lot of anger, but I was furious at the state of the pandemic when I couldn't even have a funeral for my wife, who was loved by all these people. And I was telling people, don't come, you know, and, and her sisters couldn't stand by her bedside in her final days. And, you know, her dad went yesterday, so mom can go today. And, you know, when does Marlo get to go? Because we can only have two people a day. And, you know, this, it it's was the absurdity so on unfair. top of and the unfairness. So, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just angry uh, for a long time about all that. And justifiably so, for yeah, sure. That, it, 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 it made everything more intense and exacerbated yeah. everything. Hey friends, Lisa Kefauver here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. In case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. It's a show that explores the expansiveness and the pervasiveness of grief in our lives. Because let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I'm no exception with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. But here's the thing. Individually and collectively, we are so grief illiterate, and that is harming all of us. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief, one conversation at a time. I'm so glad you're joining me. Today's episode is brought to you by Eternova. There's so many little and big ways we carry our person or even our pet with us in the wake of loss. Each act of service we do in their honor, each remembering ritual we perform, Every story of them we tell, it helps us do that. The team at Eternova is on a mission to help you remember your loved one remarkably. They've created a way for us to celebrate our remarkable loved ones by turning their ashes into a diamond. You can learn more by visiting Eternova.com. That's E-T-E-R-N-E-V-A.com. Oh, and don't forget to check them out at Eternova on TikTok too. Today's episode, what can I say? This episode came into being because of an incredible note I received from my guest, Wesley Bain, last December. But actually, it started long before that. You see, in the fall of 2020, Wesley's amazing wife, Christina, joined me on the show. At just 36, she had been living with stage four colon cancer for more than five years. It was considered chronic. And at the time of the interview, she had just received the news that only experimental treatment was left. It is truly one of the most profound and important conversations I've had on this show and in my life. On February 8, 2021, Christina died. Her husband Wesley and daughter Marlo were devastated. Eight months later, in December of 2021, I got a note unexpectedly from Wesley. I want to read it to you. Hi, my name's Wesley Bain, and I'm the husband of Christina Bain, who appeared on your podcast in November of 2020. I really just wanted to reach out and say thank you for giving her the opportunity to be on your podcast. It was very helpful to her personally, and she was so very proud of her appearance, and she spoke of it often. She was so honored to have been given the opportunity to share her story, and we even mentioned it in her obituary since the experience meant so much to her. For myself, it sadly took me until today to listen to the interview for the first time. It felt hard when she was alive, but downright impossible after she died. But having finally taken that journey, I also want to say thank you for capturing this moment in time and her voice 
and beauty and desire to help the world and to make it a better place with her time here. Thank you for the work you do to educate people about grief and different grieving experiences. And thank you more than I can ever express for including Christina on that journey. Wesley's note began a conversation that blossomed into the interview we recorded on February 9th, 2022, the day after the first anniversary of her death. We explored their love, what it was like to be by her side as the cancer wreaked havoc on her, how inspired he was by her commitment to helping other cancer patients, the conversations he had and continues to have with their daughter, Marlo, the complexity of navigating her death in the midst of the pandemic, and so much more. All I can tell you is that I felt Christina in the room with us that day. And for those of you who knew her in real life or through her episode, I think you will feel the same way too. Wesley, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. I've been thinking about this conversation for a while now since you reached out to me, and the listeners probably already heard a little bit about you and about the very special person in your life that we have in common who joined us on the show, Christina. So welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Today, we're going to explore a little bit about your life with Christina, a little bit about the illness trajectory and what it's been like um, just over a year since she died. It was a year ago yesterday as we're interviewing this, having this conversation today. But like I do with all my guests, I'm really deeply curious to know what people's earliest sort of grief beliefs were. I've shared with my listeners before, and you might have heard, we develop a sense of understanding about what grief should and shouldn't look like, both from explicit and implicit messages in our childhood, and they inform how we show up for these grown-up grief experiences. So I'm just curious if you can think back to maybe a pivotal time in your childhood that and what you learned about grief. Yeah, I was very blessed in many ways with grief and in terms of not having much of it. Yeah. I do remember, you know, some extended relatives, great-grandparents dying when I was like four or five and, you know, going to a funeral. And to me, it was boring and I had to dress up and, you know, people were walking around crying, being somber. And and I was off in the corner reading a book, uh, you know. Having to wear a little suit or something. And Uh, and I I do have very clear memories of it, but it it wasn't, you know, really grief-based. And uh, just, I was very lucky throughout my life until college when my grandfather uh, passed is really the first person that I remember having more of an impact than someone I was closer to. And it was very sad, but, you know, he was a lifelong smoker and older, and it was, it, it felt more inevitable. Um, more of an ordered more kind of, an order, of death. This is how life yeah. goes, you know, yeah. and he'd been sick for a while, and this is the natural outcome. And so, you know, I I really didn't have a lot of experience with grief, believe it or not. You know, I had some bad breakups and other things, but nothing that I ever felt particularly... Um, changed by or, or yeah. thoughtful until uh, my wife's diagnosis. And that's, that's kind of yeah. been a, a very different depth of, of grieving for me than, than I'd had before. So, I, I was, yeah, I was very lucky. I was very charmed uh, life in that regard. But uh, I would, you know, I, I would say that my grandfather was the first and it was, it was sad and it, it did represent the end of a lot of things. You know, we'd always gone to his house for Christmas. We'd, we'd do it at our house and then drive to his house and do Christmas there and things of that nature. And, you know, it was kind of the end of an era 
And, and, and traditions. Like. And, and traditions. Which and, we're going to talk about today because oh, Christina <laughs> talked a lot about um, yeah, we the had, traditions. Yeah, we had quite a few. Yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate you sharing that and, and recognizing that sometimes in life we are knocked down, you know, by a first grief experience that isn't, you know, we haven't worked our way up to in such a way that's, that's maybe a funny way to think about that. But for many of us, we kind of get blindsided by a loss in our adulthood. So, of course, today we're going to talk about Christina and your relationship with her, the trajectory of her diagnosis, which was six or seven years, I feel like. About five and a half. About five and a half years. Okay. But before that, I'd love to just get a little backstory. How did you and Christina meet? Just tell us a little bit about that. We met doing uh, improvisational theater. Somehow that does not surprise me in the least. Okay. (laughs) It was great, actually. Um, I had gotten into it with a friend who he was having a bad breakup and he's like, you know, I'm I'm taking this class. Y'all are taking it with me and brought several of us along for the ride. And we did it initially to support him, but had a blast and kept doing it and started performing around town. And Christina had come down for graduate school and she had done uh, improv in college uh, at Cornell. And so when she got here, she decided to check out the local scene and see if it was something that, you know, she, she knew she was going to be busy with grad school, but is this something she wanted to work into her life? And luckily it was. And, and, she started coming to some weekly, just freeform jams and coming to see some shows. And uh, slowly over time, we built up a friendship. And we were friends for about a year and a half before we started dating. But it gave us a very, it gave us a shared language, uh, yeah. as silly as it is. You know, there's things in improv, uh, like blocking, where someone, I'm sure many people have heard of yes yeah. and. You know, you're supposed yes. to say yes and, and and build on a scene. And if you don't do, you know, if, you, if you cut someone off, it's called blocking and stuff. And so throughout our relationship, it gave us a language to... to a little shorthand you a shorthand, had. shorthand, yeah. Like, you know, we're arguing about something or talking, and she's like, you know, you're blocking me. I'm like, oh, okay, I know exactly what you mean by that. And uh, so I, it, that was a wonderful basis to, to build a relationship on. But yeah, it started, it was a you know platonic friendship. We were clearly flirting, and it took time to build, and, and uh, yeah. it was great, yeah. I love that. I love that for so many reasons. One, I love improv, but also I'm always thinking about, I actually wrote a piece called Yes And about thinking about kind of how we think about grief instead of so binary. So I love that you already had this language of kind of Yes And, and also I can just picture Christina (laughs) on stage uh, doing that. That's amazing. So you guys met, Christina was in her late 20s, mid 20s. How old were you at this time? Oh. So it's post undergrad. There was a bit of an age difference. Yeah. Uh, when we started dating, she was 23 and I was 31. Okay. So I was eight yeah. years. And it, you know, it, initially our love story, she, because again, we've been flirting, we've been yeah. building, but she asked me out and I turned her down because of the age difference and the, and the fact that I had just bought condo and I was putting down roots and building a career and she was in grad school. She was probably going to want to move on and I didn't want to hamper that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on, but we, quickly realized that that was a mistake. And uh, I threw a um, Thanksgiving party for all the people who were not going home or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Thanksgiving. A Friendsgiving. A Friendsgiving. Yeah. And she came over and um, we talked about it again and started dating. So that, That's amazing. I love that. I love that uh, maybe she was tenacious and that you guys really saw that in each other. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things our listeners will know from the conversation that I had with Christina about a year and a half ago now, I would say, was that Christina kind of fell, had to kind of stumble her way into her diagnosis, in case you haven't listened to that episode. Christina was eventually, at the age of 31, I think, diagnosed yep. with colon cancer, mm-hmm. yep. which started with back pain and other issues that were 
bothering her. Is yeah, that right? she, she she was fit. She worked out. She ran marathons. So the initial thought was you pulled a muscle, you hurt your body somehow. You know, doctors ordered physical therapy and other things first. And it took a good six or nine months before, you know, and she advocated for herself. She said, you know, it's not getting better. You know, and her doctor finally said, you know, it's, it's an outside chance, but let's Let's do, do some a, scan. a, a, a colonoscopy. colonoscopy. Yeah. Uh, and sure enough, found it that way. But yeah, it was, it was a constant lower back tailbone pain that just wasn't getting any better. Yeah. You already had Marlo at the time. Yes. She was three, maybe? Or? She, she, not quite four. She, okay. was, she was approaching four. You know, one of the things that I've just been re-listening to my conversation with Christina, which I've done many times because our conversation and then our friendship really has shifted the way I think about how I show up in the world. And one of the things that I was remarking when I was re-listening to this is how much she appreciated, admired, and loved your care. And she talked about the very moment, or actually series of moments, where she kind of came to off maybe the Versed or whatever she was on from the colonoscopy and asked you, you know, like, what did the doctor say? And then you said, let's wait for the doctor. And, you know, you basically had to keep telling her over and over again. I know you recently listened to the conversation for the first time. Can you take us back to that moment? Or what did it mean for you to even hear Christina appreciating the fact that that must have been a very difficult place for you to be? Uh, that was huge. <laughs> I mean, I knew she appreciated me, but to hear her say it, that uh, she was, was extremely kind to me. I I hope I was kind to her in that way. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, he had come in and said, you know, I found some polyps and they're sending them off to be formalized, but it's it's cancer. And so as she was coming out, and, and this is one of those moments in life, you don't know what the right thing is necessarily, but I was just, you know, it didn't feel right to tell her until she was more conscious. Cogn- cognizant. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, conscious. Yeah. Because she was kind of drifting in and out, and and clearly I had been crying, you know, and I had tears on my face, and uh, I, there was one time she did kind of be like, it, it's, "Is something wrong?" I was like, "No, no, no," you know, because clearly yeah. she could see me, but then she kind of, you know, faced she was back a little, out. yeah, the drugs um, were working, yeah. so you know, I, I felt bad, but yeah, it it didn't feel right to to put it out there until she was in a place to really understand what that meant as well, even if she probably would have forgotten a few seconds later, yeah. know, but it, yeah, so I, I did. It meant a lot to hear her say that that was the right. course of action, because you don't know until after the fact. You never know. And the truth is, really, whatever the course of action we took was the right course, because nobody prepares you for those moments. I remember looking, walking into the R and looking at the scan of my husband's brain, which was completely basically taken over by a tumor. And I don't know if somebody had said something to me or not, and the shock. So, you know, there's no right. You can't prepare for that or go to etiquette school for how to, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And and I wasn't prepared because it was something that I think the average age of diagnosis is like 61 or something, and she's and 31. she was 31 at the and time. And so this is just a formality, and they're going to, you know, we're ruling something out, not not ruling something in, and that's not what happened, you know. So it didn't feel possible in some ways, even though it was. And, and so I was coming to terms with it as well, so that by the time she was conscious, I would have a better footing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, such as you can in that circumstances. She talked about the fact that they laid down a litany of orders and, you know, appointments. And a she whirlwind. was a whirlwind. And she's, of course, still heavily medicated. But one of the things I said to her, and I can relate to this, was even though you weren't actually medicated, the news of that information, I'm sure, kind of shut off your the executive functioning part of your brain. Can you walk us through kind of those early days and weeks from your perspective of how you were trying to make sense of this incomprehensible news and 
how we were going to communicate with Marlo and just how to navigate your life in those early days. Yeah, at first, I mean, it was trust. Uh, a lot of trust in the doctors, <laughs> a lot of trust that they were telling us to go to the right people in the right order at the right time. Because it was, it was so much to take in. And it began just a flurry of activity, you know, a series of tests and, and appointments and follow-ups. And, you know, I, I remember very clearly walking into the offices for the first time. And I don't even know how to describe the impact it had on me, but but seeing other people in the same situation and being the new one in the door. Um, yeah. And you could tell some people were more veterans of treatment <laughs> and some were, were where we were. But it, yeah, it, it was just, you know, trying to keep up. It was like life started moving without us and it's just like, hold on. And then with Marlo, we did decide early on, you know, we're, we believe very much in explaining things in context yeah. uh, rather than pretending things don't exist. So like even TV shows, I've let her watch shows with bad words and stuff. And yeah. some people have been aghast, but I'm like, you know, I prefer to explain in context what's being discussed than have her here somewhere it exist else. And have her here somewhere else, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. we knew we wanted to be upfront with her, but we also knew that at three, four, she has a very limited understanding of what's going on. So it, it was, you know, a lot of work to kind of figure out how that part of the equation would would play out. Yeah, um, and I know you guys worked with some local organizations to help you, so you weren't that piece of the work wasn't all on the two of you. Yeah, we're, like. we're very lucky to be in Austin, where there's support networks and and charities that exist, and uh, Wonders and Worries. You know, Marla mentioned them, and they were great and helped out uh, yeah. a great deal, and kind of took some of that load off the shoulders, and and yeah. you know, gave us a basis for discussions with her and. Yeah, yeah helped. because even when you have insight as a parent, and it sounds like you guys were very clear about your parenting style, which helped so that you knew kind of in some ways how to act because it was congruent with how you thought about your role as parents. Still, again, no one's ever prepared you to think about how you would, you know, you might talk about words and body parts, but we're never prepared right. to have, you know, these kinds of conversations. You know, I asked Christina about how she was thinking in the early days. I know the very first doctor, of course, wasn't making prognoses, et cetera, of what her perspective was about what her chances were in long-term survival, but also whether she thought there was anticipatory grief early on. And I want to talk to you about that because five and a half years is a long time to build. But can you think back to maybe either kind of what were you allowing yourself to think about in those early maybe months? And can you recall a time when you maybe started to recognize some anticipatory grief that mm, maybe this is not going to um, have the outcome I want? Yeah, early on, we used a lot of humor, obviously, for our, from our background. <laughs> improv. Get a lot of stuff, A lot of improv, a lot of you know joking around while waiting for the doctors and stuff. Uh, and I think Christina used the term kind of getting back to normal. Let's just let's yes. beat this, get back to normal. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of where we were for a while, especially the first, there was a time period where they'd done some tests and first rounds of chemo and did a little bit of lung surgery. But then after that, you know, we got clean scans. And so now we're about a year in or so. And it kind of felt like, okay, maybe we've beaten this. We're getting back to normal. And I remember her saying those clean scans. She went and ran a half marathon for crying out loud. We went to Way Disneyland. to show us up, Christina. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was it yeah. was great. You know, it was, yeah. it was kind of a little honeymoon period after yeah. that. And and I remember we went to Disneyland and she they you know give you buttons that you can write, you know, first yeah. time visitor or whatever. And and she wrote six months cancer free. And that was a big thing. And very shortly after getting back, a week or two after that, we got a not clean scan again. Yeah. And that that's the first time I think because the first year it was Okay, we caught this thing. We know what it is. They're treating it. We'll knock it out. We got a clean scan. We'll get back to normal. And now it's 
okay, it, that didn't work. And that was kind of the first... Because that's when it metastasized to the that's lung? That's when it metastasized okay. and started to spread. And that's that was the first time we were kind of like, okay, maybe this isn't going to be so easy. I mean, it, it was always there, you know, just of in course. the way you worry about everything. But, but it still, again, didn't feel just like the colonoscopy, didn't feel possible, didn't feel real as an outcome. And that was the first time we're like, okay, this might be harder. <laughs> this might be trickier. And there was some anticipatory grief about what this would mean if it did go the direction we didn't want it to. And that's the first time we really started thinking, you know, Marlowe and yeah. losing. It became a thing at that point. She's like, I just want to beat this thing. Yeah. But if I can't, I want to I want to get through elementary school. I want to at least get her through elementary school. And so that was kind of the first dark moment of like and thinking. Yeah. Maybe this is not, not going to turn out the yeah. way that you hope. And I remember her sharing that kind of time you know, the metastases to the lung and then that real shift for her even too, thinking like, oh, maybe this isn't how I'm going to go. You know, I know she shared, and this is very common among couples, that you guys were communicative, but that she was concerned about you. I can imagine, of course, you were deeply concerned about her and Marlo, but I'm wondering when you look back at that early time, what did you allow for yourself? Because it's, you know, we kind of show up and I'll just speak for myself in kind of protector mode and we want to make everything okay for them, the person who's sick. How did you or not make space for yourself at that time? Christina made space for me. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I come from a very old tradition of like almost martyring yourself to Buck take care of someone and, else. Yeah, and like, okay. you know, like my mom, when my grandfather was dying, my mom for six months would, you know, go down to his bedside and read to him and do stuff and take care of him. And, you know, and so I immediately went into care, caregiver mode and like, you know, okay, how are we going to do this and do that? And we had had a tradition up until that point of just on the weekends giving each other, I, I like to write, not to get published, just a hobby writer. And so she's like, you know, take four hours on Saturday morning, go from like eight to noon to the coffee shop, write, whatever. And on Sunday, I'll take Marlo for four hours and she can go do whatever she wants to do, go, you know, knit with friends or, or whatever. And so we kind of reinstituted that and at her, at you know, her urging that like, I need okay. to take care of myself and I need some time. And and did you allow yourself to do that mentally, emotionally, or was yeah. it a struggle? Yeah, okay. no, I, I did. Yeah. I did. Because it was what was needed and healthy. And and again, after it was five and a half years after even bad news, it kind of becomes routine. You know, like we yeah. were able to work that in and like I could tune out for four hours and then come back into the caregiver mode. But I'm not good at making space for myself <laughs> in those situations. Yeah. Um, I'm very much like, let's deal with the problem at hand and I'm willing to make the sacrifice to, you know, to do it. So she Another sadly gift. took care of me. Yeah. <laughs> Another gift that Christina offered you and the world and an important reminder. It was a gift to you, but it was a gift to her too, because the truth is you feeling grounded, taken care of, having space for yourself, I'm certain meant that you were able to show up with more presence and compassion and kind of energy to attend to her too. So yes, it's a gift but also, I mean, I think this is something that we all have to work on. I, I talk about this and I struggle myself as well, but it sounds like you were able to do that. And as you were sort of alluding to, over the course of five years, there was the metastases, there was a surgery, there was chemo, then there was clear. And so you were able to kind of keep that tradition of times to yourself kind of going through most of? Yeah, through, through most. Of, I think what we did change to some degree you know, I'd, I would be more likely to truncate my time or like only write for two hours and then run errands that needed to be run to, to get stuff done at the house. But, you know, I was still kind of out on my own listening to audiobook or, you know, still kind of yeah. me time, even though I was running errands. And she started spending less time going out knitting with friends and more time, you know, in her own hobbies and crafts at home. And 
so, so the way we spent the time changed. But yeah, I think it was it was good to have that time, and to, it was a refresher and kind of a, even amongst all this chaos, I exist, she exists. You know, as our yeah. own entities, and and you know, it, it yeah, it's good to step away from the chaos a little bit to, before you jump back in. So yeah, but it also became routine. The, the chaos became routine. When we come back, Wesley explores the surreal experience of how the not normal became normal over the course of the five years of doctor's appointments, treatments, remissions, and new diagnoses. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Wesley Bain. Did you ever have a moment where you sort of like recognize that, like mm-hmm. that our chaos, how has this become, no- and everything feels so not normal, every stage of a diagnosis or an illness. But if you're in this long-term situation, which I can imagine many of our listeners are, whether it's cancer or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or some other illness, somehow the not normal becomes normal. Can you, do you have a time where you sort of remember like, how is this our new normal? Yeah. I mean, it, there were several times where we got scans and they weren't great. And it was just like, okay, you know, not like. We didn't care, but like, yeah, that's our We've luck. We've been right, here next, before. Yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't the like soul crushingness of the the previous bad scans. It was just like, okay, another. All right, that means they have to change drugs. You know, yeah, um, that drug's okay. not working anymore. It just kind of became routine, and our our humor got darker. Um, okay, in response, I think. Um, yeah, but that worked for us. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so, I love that you had that shared language, as you said before, but also just sort of that shared kind of coping strategy. Mm-hmm. I've yeah. had a, a humorist on the show, Tani Plattis, who has a podcast, or did anyways, Death is Hilarious. And she talked about both her and her partner used dark humor, and they had that shared language, and that was served them. You know, not for everybody, but yeah. certainly served you too, it sounds like. Yeah, after it became chronic. So for a long time, it was, you know, we're trying to beat it. Eventually, they're kind of like, all right, you're stuck with it. Yeah. Uh, we're good. Now we're trying to mitigate it and extend, extend life, your life. But it's, yeah. it's chronic. It's not going away. That became kind of a running joke. And so she'd ask me to do something. And I'd be like, I'm busy. She's like, yeah, but I have cancer. And I'm like, oh, all right, fine. I'll, I'll Play do the it. cancer you know? yeah. card. Yeah. And, but, it, but it was all in, in jest. And, you know, but it, it was present. But it became... I think we kind of, again, tried to normalize and laugh about and just deal with. Yeah, whatever kind of skill or whatever like strategy you have to make things more palatable, I say, go for it. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And for a long time, that that worked, you know. And I know she shared, so she was a computer programmer, so she was still working a little bit here and there throughout her illness, which I'm sure was important to her. She has been a lifelong sewer knitter, right? I think, mm-hmm. or more primarily Primarily so. knitter. Knitter. Uh, got into sewing, but yeah. Was got learning. into sewing. And spinning her own yarn, yeah. all sorts of fiber crafts. <laughs> yeah. I want to explore two things, but one of the reasons that I first came across her was, of course, from our mutual friends at the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, which we're going to talk about her incredible dedication and commitment to being on the patient advisory committee. But she wrote a beautiful piece called What to Make When You're Dying. Mm-hmm. And Robin shared that with me and said, I really want you to meet Christina. That's how she came into my life. That was the entrance to the gift of Christina in my life. And in that piece, which our listeners, I'll drop a link in the show notes again for today's episode. 
she talked about this craft that has meant so much to her, but also really thinking about the legacy that she was going to be leaving both to you and to Marlo, whether it was the quilt that she was working on for you, or even the clothes that she might try to put together, you know, sort of age and stage up to Marlo's 18th birthday. And she recognized the duality maybe of what a gift it could be to all of you, but also worried maybe is the right word that it would feel like a burden. Yep. And I know she shared that in the show, and you've listened to that episode. What do you know now about how she used sewing and those crafts during that time and kind of now a year since her death? What are you thinking about that legacy that she left? Yeah, um, it's it's an amazing article, and uh, I remember her writing and thinking about that and the duality of the kindness and the, well, my daughter even I remember she used the word burden or, yeah. yeah, yeah, She worried it was a burden. She, you know, we'd have to give these gifts and then would my daughter, you know, even like them and feel like she has to wear them because my my wife made them and, you know, all this stuff. And, yeah. you know, fashions change and style changes. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, she, I mean, she didn't really make anything for that in the end. She made a few just general things, mittens and things that have already been, you know, given to my daughter. And, you know, I still have all her fabrics and yarns. And, you know, one of the things she says in that article is, you know, maybe my daughter will do something with them herself one day. And so... You know, I'm, I'm kind of sitting on all that to see where my daughter's passions go. And maybe it's something that even if my daughter doesn't become a crafter. Yeah. You know, one one of the things someone, uh, an in-law after she passed, asked for some of her clothing to have made into teddy bears. Yes. Type yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, you know, so maybe something with that, the, you know, her fabric collection and stuff that she had uh, cultivated and, and built up that she would, you know, I could turn it into something for my yeah. daughter. So even if it's not something my my wife made, it still has that connection point. And my yeah. my daughter can go through the fabric and say, I really like this one that, that mom had. So it, yeah, it was something that was on her mind a lot about how, I mean, it was therapy, her, her crafting was therapy. And so at, at times when the treatment would get in the way of that, it was especially dark and heartbreaking for her. Some of the treatments. Because of her energy or her just... Sometimes it was energy. Sometimes it was pain. She couldn't sit up to sew because her the cancer had gotten into her bones and her you know ribs and spine. And so she couldn't sit upright. Some of the chemotherapy treatments would cause neuropathy and she couldn't hold the needles to knit. Those were the times when it was darkest, I think, for her. How was that for you to watch her in those times where she didn't so have that outlet? Yeah, so painful because because you know as I said, like I'm a hobby writer, I like to go write, and so that was that was her outlet. And when that's taken away from you, it's just too much time with your thoughts. It's time with your thoughts and time. You know, she it, it makes it very real all of a sudden that this is a real thing, and it's easy when you're you at least keep your hands busy knitting and stuff, and all of a sudden you can't do that. So those were the darkest when she was most depressed, and I yeah, very hard to watch and. You know, because you can't help. <laughs> you know, you you want to help, and yeah. there's so many things you can do, but you can't you can't give them that back uh, in that moment. And and you know, it come and go. And and toward the end, unfortunately, she really did have not to get to do down. much and have yeah. to set that down. But yeah. that was something that was very important to her. And and when we did bury her, actually, it was all in handmade clothing yeah. um, that she had made herself. And the sweater I'm wearing right now is one of that she made for me. And and that's something that's become of increasing importance to us. You know, yeah. is the, the things she left behind. Those and tangible objects that were made out of her were, love and yeah. her hand. and yeah. yeah, all the gifts she gave us with the handmade ones are very particularly precious. So. She did talk about she was working on a quilt for you. And I don't know if you remember, she said, you know, but she worried about you being alone and she gave you permission, not that you wanted it or wanted to think about that to marry again someday. But she said, 
But if that person doesn't want the quilt on the bed using her humor, as Christina did, then she's not the right woman for you. What do you think about when you look at that quilt and even just that gesture that she offered to you? Unfortunately, it did not get completed. Okay. Uh, but some of her friends have stepped up and taken it uh, and are going to complete it. That's the type of friends and community she had. It was one of those projects that we had, she bought stuff for years and years ago, almost 10 years ago, and, and kind of started. But then we'd get distracted by something else and get started and distracted by something else. And I, I have Scottish heritage, and so it's a nice thistle design, you know, with these little purple flowers. And God knows how many pieces, hundreds of little pieces she had to cut and arrange and everything. So she had, over the years, put together pieces of it, a lot, a lot of pieces, but not, not gotten to completion. She was sad about that, but as I said, her friends stepped up. And, and when I see the pattern, like, I just, yeah, I, w- I want to cry because it reminds me so much of, of her and, um, you and know. Her love for you. Yeah, and, yeah. and her thought that we had time, you yeah. know, because that's why she kept putting it off. Like, oh, I'll, I'll get to that. You know, you get your quilt eventually and stuff because I was like, oh, yeah, you know, make that other thing for your friends, baby shower or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until the end that she's like, oh. now I want to finish this and I'm running yeah. out of time. Um, that yeah. they realized that that so it was kind of a metaphor too. I think for you know we always it, it got put aside because we had time to come back to it, and then we didn't, and it got more important. So yeah. Oh, I just want to take a moment, <laughs> yeah, and just honor that and that connection, and also you know it's remarkable that she has those kind of friends who are showing up and doing that, and. The brief amount of time I got to know Christina and call her a friend, that's the kind of friend she was, too, to others. So it doesn't surprise me at all. She was amazing. You know, that she has people who are still helping carry on her memory and her legacy. Yeah. 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 So many. And then, I mean, as you said earlier, it was a year yesterday. It was a one-year milestone. And her friends sending texts, you know, can we bring you dinner? Can we, you know, all this stuff. And still, all this time later, Yeah. you know, it wasn't like a... We're there for you the first two weeks and disappear, yeah. you know. And they weren't even my friends; they were her friends. When they're still reaching out a year later and saying, "How can we, you know, take care of her family?" Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a lesson for all of us that it's important to show up in the beginning. But my grief support motto is: show up, shut up, and listen, and keep showing up. And I think the keep showing up part is really important, and it can look different over time. But it sounds like the community and the tribe that you all built are doing just that. You know, so you were talking about the fact that there was this duality of thinking she had time to work on the quilt, but then sort of recognizing that she was running out of time. One of the things that I know was really important to Christina, and she and I talked about in our conversation, was her work as a patient advocate for the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, which was trying to create a, and did create a new sort of form of cancer care. What did that mean to you? that she spent some of her time right up, I think, a week or maybe two weeks before her death she was on, is you know joining in via Zoom as part of one of those committees. What did you recognize about the value for Christina's sense of self being a participant in that? And what meaning did you make of that investment um, of time? It's, it's changed me to see. She was the kind of person who was very dedicated. And when she committed herself to something, she wanted to make it better. She wanted to throw her energy in and and when she got diagnosed that seemed like something that took a lot of energy but she found a way to give back <laughs> even then we actually found out the week that she died that they had nominated her for yes. an award yes uh, the, the barrel institute for a, a patient advocacy award which she won which she won we found out the week she she died that she had won the award so i mean that i joke 
with people. That's the that's the kind of person she was. Like she couldn't even be a cancer patient without getting an award for like best cancer patient. <laughs> like, I mean, she was always, you know, she yeah. she just contributed all the time. Yeah. That's what she did, and it has inspired me because I tend not to contribute of myself. I try and be a good person, I try, but I try to like, you know, I write a check and not volunteer. Gotcha. You know, like, you know, not, I still, I still give, but I'm like, I, yeah, that's, yeah, that's that's me doing that thing. But you know, I've really reassessed after her passing. Like, how can I give? Be of service. Be of, my, be of service and, and put myself, not just write a $50 check when someone comes asking, but show up and volunteer and do stuff and, and make the change in the world she did. Because, I mean, that's what that's what she was trying to do was saying, like, this sucked for me. She was, she was very much the type of person who wanted to leave a better world behind and not, not like I had to suffer through it, so you should have to suffer through it. You know, right. sometimes people make the argument of like, well, I had to do that. Yeah, well, I had you, to tough you, it yeah, up. And, you, yeah. you know, <laughs> and she's not like, she's like, well... I'm sorry you had to do that, but don't you want the people behind you to have a better world? Don't you want them to have a better experience? So she wasn't one to grouse and grumble that she had this disease. She said, well, how can I make it better for the next person that gets this disease? Because I have no choice, but I can help them. So it's been something that's been very heavy on my mind um, since her passing. And and I've a combination of being in grief mode for a year and a pandemic, (laughs) which doesn't help. Uh, You know, I haven't really found out how to make that actionable yet and get out there but you know it's something that has changed my perspective and my priorities and you're um, also a single father which we're going to talk about in a little bit and also to a child who now has an illness but one of the things I wonder is you know she said to me at that time when we had our conversation I think it was like around October of 2020 and she passed February 2021 was that her energy you know in the later years was limited and she was very careful with her time which made me cry that she was sitting in conversation with me with her time. Did you ever feel worried or maybe even resentful that she was spending her time doing these other things? Or did you see that it made her so happy? Or how was that balance of where she spent her time? Oh, yeah. No, not not in the least resentful. I, I was happy to see it bring it brought her happy. Yeah, it brought meaning. It brought, yeah. it brought happiness. And when the end came, it came very quick. As I said, we were going through this for about five and a half years. And even the darkness became normal and blah, blah, blah. But the last two months was a freight train. Just when it turned, it turned and went straight downhill. And, you know, in hindsight, I kind of wish I had been a little more selfish with <laughs> some of her time in some ways. Yeah. Because um, yeah. it happened so fast. I was like, I wish I'd had some more time and, and done some things different. But, yeah, no, that that was an aspect that it brought her such great joy and such pride to be on this show, to write those articles, to work with the young cancer groups and yeah, no, I, I, it inspired me. No, no jealousy or anything yeah. of that nature. Yeah. And, and, um, yeah. Well, she not only changed, helped create and change the model of calm for the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, but I know she deeply impacted her fellow cancer patients who were a part of those advisory boards. I had the honor of um, spending some time with them after Christina's passing and just offering some support and her generosity of spirit and her willingness to try to go to the mat and make changes for other people resonated even in her fellow cancer patients. And of course, she won this prestigious international award. I think one of the doctors is running a 5K in her honor this year. I mean, the ripple effect of her is, but particularly in the way she showed up in that patient advocacy was was tremendous. You talked about the end coming surprisingly quick, which I know might feel like an oxymoron to some of us because it was a long time, but you're never ready. Were you able to be with Christina? How do you feel when you look back now a year on that time at the end? Yeah, I... I was with her when when she did pass. I was in hospice, and you know I was spending a lot of time with her. 
it did happen so fast. It, and it was something that, it was interesting earlier, you mentioned her protecting me or, or giving us time and stuff. And as you said, you talked to her in October. Yeah. By about Thanksgiving, she was losing weight very quickly. You could just look at her and tell something was changing. Her energy level was low. Her mobility was low. But I never said anything because I, it felt kind of understood, but I didn't want to point it out or, or you know. Make her feel self-conscious. Make her feel self-conscious or, that it is yeah. close, you know, that, yeah. that she needs that optimism to keep going. And uh, and I found out many months later, <laughs> her my father-in-law, her father showed me a text where she was doing that for me, where, mm. um, sorry. No, um, don't apologize. She uh, was outside a doctor's office because he had come down to help. Very generous, taking a lot uh, he, he just planned to be here for like six months because she was in a trial. And, uh, you know, we had Marlo, which made me going with her to Houston over and over. Plus the pandemic. Plus the pandemic, and, plus yeah. work and everything. You know, so he came down to just take her to, to Houston and back. And he showed me a text where she had just gotten out of an appointment. And she said, like, this is very close. Um, and it was very clear that she was trying not to worry me. And I was sitting there the whole time trying not to worry her. And I wish... We have been more honest in those moments with each other because I think we both knew what was coming and we were trying not necessarily to be strong for the other one, but to protect, to protect the other one, keep their yeah. hopes up and that optimism so they have that fire to fight. And, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, though, you know, I really wish we had had some more conversations and some more time focused on us because it it, it really hit me weirdly when Chadwick Boseman died, the, yeah. the Marvel, yep. he, he was making Marvel movies and then all of a sudden he's passed away from colon cancer and you see final photos and he's skinny and everyone's like, what happened? And that, that's what happened for us. Like she, I mean, she was getting slowly, progressively worse for a long time. time. Yeah. But it was fast but forwarded. But all of a sudden, like, yeah, just the weight dropped her mobility dropped her everything. Just, it just turned and went down fast. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting that we were both protecting each other. Even, even then we were, we were both not admitting what we both knew. And, you know, I said earlier, I don't know what the right decision was. I don't know if, but we were, you know, we were both Did in the, the moment, and, and we can. both had that instinct of like, you know, she's she's telling her dad like this is this is really bad, and it's it's not long now. But she never said that to me. And when she did go, uh, when she finally passed, you know, we were, it was hard. But I was reading, you know, all the text messages from friends, everything, you know, getting flooded with them. And so I, I hope she did know that she impacted so many people. And but yeah, it was yeah, the, and. When we come back, Wesley shared the complexities of navigating what turned out to be the final year of Christina's life in the midst of the pandemic. He opens up about his anger and frustration that it put on their time with the ones they loved, up to and including decisions like who could and couldn't come to her funeral. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Wesley Bain. Don't forget, if you want to keep up with the latest on the show, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. If you want some behind-the-scenes news, the latest on my work with individuals and companies, the scoop on the book I'm writing, which is the same name as this show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and more, visit www.lisakefauver.com. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. And sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter. Why not so regular? Because grief isn't on a schedule, and neither is this newsletter. 
She loved you so much, and it's obvious how much you loved her. And we always have to offer ourselves such grace and patience that we're doing the best we can in a completely untenable situation, you know? On top of, by the way, I think we cannot diminish the impact that the fact that you were doing all of this in the midst of a pandemic, (laughs) right? So being physically in doctor's offices and spaces and having physical comfort and contact with outside people just exacerbated the intensity, I imagine, and the isolation and the loneliness of the experience? Yes, very much so. The The last year was extremely hard for both of us, partially just because it had spread to her lungs, the cancer. It was in her lungs and her, her throat at the end, and a COVID diagnosis. Yeah. There was, there, there was no good outcome if she, if she caught COVID. So we were being very strict, very, very much locked down, and she missed her friend, I mean, she's, as we've discussed many yeah. times, very social, right? You know, and yeah. she would try and do stuff in the yard, you know, spread out six yeah, or eight feet with chairs and, you know, someone go to Sonic and get a drink and bring it over and they sit in the front yard and talk or whatever. But like that whole social network just is real hard to maintain. And and they still tried with, you know, virtual book Zooms clubs, Zooms, and, yeah. and, but it's, it's not the same. It's never the same. And for me, it was really when she was in the final stages and after because again, with her father helping, like only one person could, they, he wasn't even allowed in MD Anderson. Mm. She went to the door, went in, and he would go Just like wait park in the car. or wait and yeah. come back, you know, when she was ready. They were very strict. I mean, and they're dealing with very sick people, so obviously very strict, but very different from before when, you know, I'd go in and Marla go in and we'd all go into a room and, you know, and here all of a sudden it's like lockdown, no one can go in. And, and when she, she went into the hospital in January shortly before, and it was... Uh, very strict visitor protocols, two visitors a day. And in hospice was the hardest. Uh, she was only there for a few days, but her father had called everyone and said, It's time. It's time. Come down. And two people a day, you know? And so she's in the final moments of her life, and we're having to decide who gets to go see her and who gets to be there. So... That was extremely hard. That was extremely hard. And uh, you may know with her um, funeral, about 20, 30 people, and it would have been two or 300, and I had to turn people down. I mean, I was waving people off for their safety and our safety. And I mean, the pandemic was raging, and I I told my own family, you know, don't come. I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) Her family's already here, but like, you know, telling people don't come and... You know, if someone had come down and got COVID on the plane coming to her right. funeral and gone back and gotten so, sick, I would have yeah. made everything, you know, so much. <laughs> it would have just torn at us. So I was angry. That That's, I, yeah. I'm not someone who holds a lot of anger, but I was furious at the state of the pandemic when I couldn't yes. even have a funeral for my wife, who was loved by all these people. Yeah. And I was telling people, don't come, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and her sisters couldn't stand by her bedside in her final days. And, you know, we're dad went yesterday so mom can go today and you know when does marlo get to go because we can only have two people a day and you know this that was the absurdity on top of and the unfairness yeah yeah i was i was just angry uh for a long time about all that and justifiably so for sure it 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 made everything more intense and exacerbated everything yeah you did end up having a beautiful small outdoor ceremony i was i got to attend and um marlo's Maturity, amazing. Was I'm not sure I've ever seen anything like that, and yours, and just 
I was speaking with our mutual friend Robin that day, and I swear there was like rainbows and sparks and things flying out of the energy of everybody in that place around Christina. It wasn't the ceremony and the ritual and the experience you would have hoped to have, but is there something that stands out about that time and that day? I mean, just that the peop- so many people did come still, because <laughs> um, it also wasn't easy. I mean, it was 45 minutes outside of Austin. Yep. A lot of people drove out there. and Out in the woods. Out in the woods. A beautiful natural burial park. Yeah, Marla's maturity amazed me. She's kind of like I am in a lot of ways, where things are very factual first and emotional later. So she's like, okay, mom's passed, and I'm going to read a poem and all this stuff. And, you know, and it's now, months later, she's starting to really realize what death means and what not having a mother means and that sort of thing. But at the time, she's like, you know, okay, you know, we knew it was coming, I got to do this thing. And and she wrote several poems that she read, and it was amazing. And I'm glad you said rainbows and everything, because as you, I'm sure, yeah. remember, the yeah. next day the snow started falling. Yes. And then we, we wound up at a whole different situation yeah. Um, yeah. after the, the services. Um, <sighs> Snowpocalypse. Snowpocalypse. Yeah, we, we lost power. And yep. luckily, my father-in-law was still here with an Airbnb. But we wound up in a very intense situation with him and his wife and his ex-wife, my mother-in-law, who was still in town. And she lost power. And me and my daughter and our two cats in like an 800-square-foot Airbnb oh for like three or four days. And then they lost power. <laughs> we, had, and we we luckily got ours back on a few hours later and were able to all move to our house. But it was one of those like we were in this intense space. We're grieving, grieving husband, all on top of each other. All on top of each other. A grieving father, a grieving mother, exes. Cats, people allergic to cats, like everything, all in one space. And my daughter, bless her heart, at the end when, when they had lost power too. And I was like, we're, you know, I'm going to go take a nap. And she went in there with me and laid down. And I just started crying, like tears coming down because I had no idea what was going on. You know, I just lost my wife. We're four days into power outages. It's the second place we've gone. They've lost power now. And I don't know when it's coming back. And how do I take care of my daughter and all this? And she <laughs> rolls over and she looks at me and she goes, so your your first week of single parenting didn't go so well, did it? And I just lost it. I started laughing so hard. And I was like, girl, you don't know how bad I needed that. <laughs> that was like... Just brought that improv comedy yeah, right the, back Yeah, the around. timing, the delivery, everything. She's like, yeah, your first yeah. week didn't go so well. I was like, oh, yeah, no, I didn't. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was, that was a nice yeah. memory amongst all the, the chaos. That's really remarkable. You know, that's one of the things I want to talk about before we close our conversation for today anyway is, so Marlo, I think, was nine Mm -hmm. at the time that Christina passed. And not only are you grappling with the death of your wife, but now you're learning to be a single parent. I can relate. My daughter was seven when Eric passed away. Not to mention, but, you you know, plus you have pandemic, snowpocalypse, how did you begin to navigate what that was going to look like being a single parent? And I do think culturally being a single father is even has different assumptions and messages and supports, I think, sort of culturally, you know, writ large here in the West anyways. How was that beginning to navigate? And then I know in the intervening year, unfortunately, Marlo has been diagnosed with a serious illness. So you're back into the medical system again, which is, I'm sure, exactly the last place you wanted to be. Tell us a little bit about what that's been like for you. Uh, It's been hard. It's been extremely hard. And the reason it's been hard may not be the emotional side. I mean, there is, and it's something that's kind of slowly played out. Marlo's kind of a warrior and, you know, she's been rolling with it, but every now and then 
all of a sudden she'll ask those questions like, you know, I, I'm sorry, or, you know, say something like, I'm starting to forget what mom's voice sounded like. Can you play me a video? And gets very, very deep and emotional. And she started to say, like, I don't, you know, now I, she got her ears pierced for her birthday. And she's like, you know, which mom were here to go earring shopping? <laughs> all the, all these milestones. All these little things that yeah. suddenly doing it with a mother, it's better than doing it with a father in her eyes. And, and you yeah. know, and, and I get it. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you're starting to realize. And you, and you still haven't gotten to puberty shopping for and... puberty and shopping for prom dresses and everything else. Yeah. And you're going to suddenly be like, okay, this is what not having a mother means. But I, I have been diagnosed myself with ADHD and attentive disorder, which I've had for my whole life, I'm sure, and was always manageable. But it's kind of exacerbated with, again, the, the grieving, the pandemic. And Stress, everything, else. everything, yeah. And so one thing I am not good at and that my wife always handled, we, we did have kind of a, a division of roles, not for any cultural reason, but just, just I, mean, I did certain things better. Exactly. She, did certain things, she, she was social in that regard. So she handled all the play dates, the Girl Scout meetings, the like all this stuff. And having to take that on has been extremely hard. So like I'm real good at keeping my kid fed, keeping her clothes clean, you know, mm-hmm. all the things that need to happen. So technically the say, practical stuff. Yeah, I'm taking care of my kid, but uh, you know, I'm real sloppy and inattentive about responding to emails and getting something set up for a play date or and pandemics made it somewhat easy. <laughs> there's, there's only so many yeah, options. There's only, there's only so many options. Yeah. But that has been the hardest part for me is taking on and realizing how much Christina did to keep the social aspect of our family functioning and the she also did tech support. <laughs> She's very good at tech support. That's so. right. She was a computer programmer. Uh, so, so yeah. I, yeah, I've had to take those roles on, and those have been not in my wheelhouse normally, yeah. and, and that's that's been hard and frustrating. And as you said, there are you know other aspects of just being a single father and and you know single parenting. You do it for a week or something when they're on a business trip, and you think it's not a big deal or or you know not as hard as it sounds. But it's it, no one can really prepare you for. And I call this is someone made this distinction once, and I thought it was real interesting. When you're a widow or a widower, you're an only parent. Mm-hmm. Because I think not that I'm diminishing, like if you have a divorce and the other person is still in their life, you know, you can can share responsibilities. I don't think it's taken me years. My daughter's now just off to college, but, you know, it took me years to recognize it's not just the practical, tactical, I have to pay the bills and cook and groceries and Girl Scouts and whatever. For me, I don't know if there's been this experience for you, the places where it feels like a punch in the gut every time is the decision-making. There's nobody else, even though I, like you, have extended family, in the end, the decisions are up to me. So whether it's diagnoses, Lily had had some things, you know, going to medical appointments or just simple things, where should we live or just the decision-making not to have the conversations. Is, and especially now as you've started to navigate the medical system on her behalf, how has that struck you as far as kind of not having a partner to think it through with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a practical side not having a partner because it is it's everything. I mean, it's a little thing, like my, my car light came on, like, oh, go get service. I know, like, and that oh. used to be something like, okay, well, I'll leave Marla with my wife. I'll go, you know, so everything has to be put in the context of like, how do I take time off work but not leave, you know, my kids got to be covered and all this stuff. Yeah. But yeah, she, over the Christmas break, she was acting strange. She's very lethargic, started drinking a lot, getting up to urinate in the middle of the night and like multiple times for three, four or five times. And I even made a joke early on. It's like, that's the classic sign of diabetes. But I didn't have the knowledge. I, I'd seen some type two diabetes yeah. and that can come on much slower. You know, it's much more diet based and other things. And right, it, it comes right. on. Type one kind of 
it's been happening for months, but her body reached a tipping point <laughs> where it can't mm. keep up. And so it was days. Like she went into diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a DKA, and took her to the pediatrician. And they're like, go straight to Dell Medical. <laughs> and, you know, spent five wow. days there and came out with a type 1 diabetes diagnosis. But yeah, that was, that was a moment where I was like, who do I talk to about this? Who do I talk to? <laughs> and, and I didn't, my wife, you know, I would have said, like, do we take her to the doctor? Like, you know, I, I didn't have anyone to bounce that off of. I'm like, she's acting weird. But like, I was also like, it's break. She's sleeping in. Is that the same thing? It, it wasn't. I mean, it went on for about five or six days. It wasn't until I looked at her. She got dressed for bed and her nightgown hung weird. And she had lost seven pounds in seven days that I was like, OK, something's way off. Like That's when the alarm bells really. Because before that, it was kind of like, OK, she's acting weird. But, you know, it could be pre-puberty. It's, it's, she's sleeping in. She's irritable. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I didn't realize it could come on that fast, <laughs> and it uh, it definitely did. And they were like 80% of the kids get diagnosed this way. They're like, this is how it happens. <laughs> you know, wow. from, so, Which so, is weirdly reassuring, maybe. In, I don't in a know. way, yeah, because yeah. I was kicking myself. I'm like, why didn't I bring her in sooner? Why did, yeah. you know, but, but that was a moment where I was just like, I wish I had my wife just to check. Another set and of say, eyes. And, yeah, and, what do you see? Is this something where, yeah. you know, and like you said, the decision's me, and, you know, I'm trying to balance it with everything, and I guess I made the right call in the end. I wish I had made it a day or two sooner, but, yeah, yeah so that, it's it's hard without having someone that, to get a second opinion with. And, and now, as you said, being back in the medical system, and it's a whole different problem, but, you know, I'm back in the caregiver role, which is unusual and not, I thought I was kind of shaking that off after five and a half years and yeah. now I found myself right back in it. But it's raising a lot of questions with my daughter about, I have this chronic condition, mom had a chronic condition, why does this keep happening to us? Why, you know? Mm, kind of existential. Yeah. And so there's there's been quite a lot. And in a new form of, of grief is, you know, I look ahead to her future and I'm grieving on her behalf of, she can't, you know, it, it, it's not... A death sentence, right? You know, it's yeah. manageable. Diabetics can live totally normalized with more math and planning. Right, <laughs> you know, you right, right, right. Count your carbs and all this stuff. But but she doesn't have the freedom. Like, you know, she can't just go to the movies and decide, I'm going to get I'm going to binge on I'm Coke binge. and yeah, popcorn. I, yeah. I bought this thing of brownie bites and I'm going to eat four, but instead I eat the whole container. You know, the stupid stuff you do and, you, and with teens, you're hanging out and you're just, yeah. she can't do that, you know, without really thinking about what she's going to do. You know, so I'm, I'm kind of grieving for that loss of freedom yeah. and, and carefree life that, you know, she... On her behalf. On her behalf that she'll have, you know. And, and again, it's she'll plan. It'll become normal for her. It, if it had to happen, I'm glad it happened now. She's old enough to understand. She's not, you know, four or five. And she's not old, but she's not old enough to have already established these habits with going out with friends and doing, you know, right. so she can learn and make it part of her routine. And by the time she gets there, this it'll, will it'll be, be her routine. new normal. <laughs> it'll yeah. be her new normal. Yeah. And, yeah. But as a father, not only grieving on behalf for her, but also I imagine in some ways as yourself that like we all think and hope that we're going to have children who are healthy and carefree. And, mm -hmm. you know, I can imagine this is kind of just another aspect of grief for you just to come to terms with it, this it, new diagnosis. Yeah. And the weirdest thing about it is it's kind of the same thing that happened with Christina, which it's the guilt. It's not me in a way. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, we talked earlier, there's like an eight-year age difference with my wife, and she ran marathons and stuff, and she's the one who got sick. And I'm a little bit overweight, and I don't run or anything, you know, and, and I didn't. And now my daughter has gotten sick, and I'm not. And, like, I feel an enormous amount of guilt. You know, it's kind of irrational in, in one way, but— um, Guilt uh, has a way of being irrational. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, I, you know— I. And I, I worry because, you know, my daughter is kind of like, why does this keep happening? And I'm like, I can't. There are no answers. You know, this is it, with type one, you know, the 
they don't know what causes it. It's it's autoimmune. It's your body attacking your pancreas, and it's it's you know it wasn't her diet. Nothing you it wasn't could her do. Exercise. Yeah, exactly. It was totally yeah. random. And I was like, you know, we've we've been on the. Uh, You've been here before. Part of my French, the the shit end of the stick, you know, with Christina. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, we find ourselves back here. And I'm I'm trying to work with her a lot because she has seen with her mom, you know, being ill, that one one hand makes it scarier because she saw the outcome of a prolonged illness. But on the other hand, you know, she sees the strength that her mom had and and she, you know, definitely draws on that and and has compared herself. Like, you know, I I think mom would be proud of the way I'm handling this. Mm. And I think she will come out the other side stronger for it in some ways. And I hope that, you know, I keep telling her everyone has their thing. That's that's the thing. That's what I've learned through all this, I think, that you don't know what anyone else is going through. You never know what anyone else is going yeah. through. And you, someone's going through a divorce, someone's, and they all put on the smile and they go out in public and you have no idea. You know, and I've, I've really learned to be less judgmental, more empathetic, more yeah. compassionate about the plight of others. And, you know, I've seen so many who don't have the advantages I've had financially in many ways suffer through this as well. And my heart goes out to, to everyone. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm always telling Marla, I was like, everyone, there's some there's some other kid in your class whose mom is sick. There's some other kid in your class who's getting a divorce and you don't know. And there's some other, you know, this is your thing, yeah. right? Now, yeah. now you have your thing. And yeah. we're going to learn to manage it and deal with it and, and find out what your new normal looks like. And that's where we are. So. Yeah. That's beautiful that you are having those honest, open conversations with her and kind of having that perspective. I wonder as we close and as you were kind of walking into year two without Christina on on this plane, but of course in all of our hearts, what are you carrying forward with you? I heard you say empathy and compassion has, you know, increased for others. You know, I wouldn't be a grief guide if I didn't also remind you that that empathy and compassion has to flow inwards. But how do you think you are stepping into this year two? What's important for you about Christina's legacy, about your own self-care, about caring for Marlo? I've learned that I'll never be the me I was again. I, I kind of feel like I was a man made out of Legos and someone ran by and just smashed me with a bat. And I spent the first six or nine months sitting in the pile of Legos crying. <laughs> yeah. And then I started trying to put them back together and I realized like some pieces are missing and some pieces are broken and there's some new pieces I guess the guy dropped on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so... It was always like, let's get back to normal. And I'm realizing like, no, that me was truncated. That I was not ready to let go of that me. I've changed many times in my life, but that that one was one that was truncated. And so I am in the process of building myself back into something. And I don't know what. <laughs> and, I, and that's scary and also exciting. But I definitely want to build in more compassion and more, you know, as I said earlier, I want to, I want to find a way to volunteer, to, to do more, to, to make positive change in the world. I think Christina's really inspired that in me, and I want my daughter to see that uh, legacy continue and to not feel anger at the things that have happened to her with the loss of her mother, her own diagnosis, but inspiration to say, like, yeah. you know, I can I can How use can I these, grow into the world? Yeah, to make yeah. the plight of others better, to make, you know, to grow into the world and make the world something meaningful, um, that this is... It has a limitation, but everyone has some some limitation. And so I just have to worry, figure out how to, to navigate around this. And yeah, so I'm, I'm in that spot where I'm rebuilding and I know I'm rebuilding and I've come to terms with the fact I'm not going to go back to normal. I'm going to be someone else. And and who is that is kind of where I am. Yeah. So that's, that's what, yeah, it's a great, great question. And I, I hope the pandemic lightens and we can start getting back out to do stuff. But I would love to find more opportunities to contribute and build something better for everybody. 
Yeah, I love that. I love that metaphor of the Lego. My listeners will know I always use a grief metaphor that, you know, the story of our lives are torn to shreds and we're kind of rewriting or reliving into the new story of our lives. And if you're early, early in your grief and you hear this, I'm not going back to normal, feel free to tell us both to F off and, you know, you don't not ready to hear that. But the truth is we're always in a state of becoming. These moments, these losses that we face are very, you know, put that in sharp relief. But I love this metaphor that you offered us of kind of, there are still Lego pieces there. Some of them who represent the version of you that you were before Christina's death, but that you're going to be building a new version of yourself that still probably holds true to the integrity of who you are, but also takes in the lessons, the kind of growth opportunities that have happened as a result of facing this loss. And what a beautiful metaphor to leave us with. I really appreciate that. Wesley, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. I hope this won't be our last conversation. I know I personally have been touched by Christina's life and now your life and sharing the story with us. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was truly a conversation that I didn't want to end. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I felt Christina's light and humor and magic wrapped around us the entire time. I appreciate the way Wesley thoughtfully and vulnerably explored his experience as a caregiver, spouse, and father during the five years Christina lived with cancer. The inspiration and lessons he learned from the way she spent her time and the frank reflections about the conversations they did and didn't have and the experience of navigating only parenthood as he raises Marlo on his own. If you haven't already, or it's been some time, you might be interested to go listen to the full episode of my conversation with his wife, Christina. It's called Bearing the Weight. I'll drop a link in the show notes for today's episode too. I wanna thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for today's show and special thanks to the team at Studio Pod for helping me produce it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my special guest, Wesley Bain. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>